This, this series that we're, we're in, by the time we're done with it, it will be the longest series that we will have ever done in the history of the church. And I've, I've felt that when we started this series, there was, we were going to get to a point, I didn't know when it was going to come, I didn't know what it was going to be connected to, where, where we were just going to pause and there was going to be a few sermons on that one addition to the diagram. I, I think we're coming up on it. We'll, we'll see as I get through tonight and then in the next couple of weeks. But this is the, if you're new, new with us tonight, you you're, uh, th- this is what we want to show you. This is what we're working through. We're just a piece at a time, right? We're just, we're taking small bites. We're taking small bites. And every week we fill in a new part. And so this is where we've gotten to. The next slide is going to show how far we've gotten in this series. We've gotten pretty far. Maybe I would say maybe we're about halfway. And, and what we're going to be talking about tonight is Hebrews 9.27 right there in the lower left-hand corner where it says judgment. I, I think we're going we're gonna to be here for, a, for a, a couple, a few weeks. We shall see. But let me read you. I'm going to read both verses here, 27 and 28. But it says, and, and just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. So also Christ was offered once for all times as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people, he will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. We talked about that at our Easter service, that Jesus keeps his promises. He's coming back for us. There's going to be a generation of people that will not see death. They will see the return of Christ. But it's a sobering part on that first verse, is it not? It, it, we, we know that each of us is going to die. That doesn't come as a surprise. But then it says, for all, all of us are going to face judgment. Every single person. Even those of us who have made a vow of devotion to Christ. Now, that judgment is not determining whether or not we're going into heaven. That was settled for us the moment we made a vow of devotion to Christ. We know that heaven is promised to us. But somewhere between our journey here, where we are alive in this moment, and the moment that we enter into eternity, there's going to be a conversation that the Bible clearly says that we're going to have with Jesus, where he's going to talk to us about how we lived. It's called judgment. It's waiting for us. And I know one of the great motivators for me in this life is to be ready for that. Think about how much you have prepared in your life for interviews. College interviews, work interviews, in-law interviews. We were talking to some friends last night, and they said our daughter tonight is in Richmond meeting her boyfriend's parents for the first time. And we all shuddered, right, because we remember that moment. There's conversations that we, we, we get ready for. I, I hope we're all living our lives getting ready for this one, because this is going to be the most important conversation that you and I ever have. Now, I wanted to start with that, because that's going to be where we're going to be camped out for a couple of few weeks, and, and then I, I want you to, try, we're going to come back to it, but I want you to be patient with me, because it's going to take some time for me to connect the dots. You with me? 
I'm, I'm going to pivot in a, in a minute, and you're going to think, I don't understand how that, that what you're talking about now, has to do with what you open with. And what I'm saying is, it's gonna, so just, it's okay. It's okay. It's like we're all going to be little kids in the backseat of the car on the way to vacation. Are we there yet? We're, we're going to get there, but we're going to have to take a few turns along the way. All right, here's my pivot. At various points in all of our lives, we have stood in front of a mirror of sorts. Maybe for some of you, you literally stood in front of a mirror. Whether it was something like this or something hanging on a wall or something in the bathroom and you just stared and began to reflect on your future. But for all of us, even if it was just in our mind's eye, we have looked into a mirror and we have envisioned a version of our future self. You with me? We, we have dreamed a dream about a person that we want to become. And, and, and then all of a sudden, that dream, I'm going to call it an image because it begins to take shape. It, it, it is an image that we begin to chase after. It's an image that we begin to pursue. It's an image that we begin to give our lives to build. We begin to make decisions in our present because we want to see what we have envisioned ourselves as one day becoming, being made manifest. I don't know if you're a football fan, but if you are, you know the NFL draft has been happening since Thursday night. The second person that was taken in the draft, this dynamic young athlete, a defensive end, when they interviewed him, he opened up his jacket. It's the coolest jacket I've ever seen. Because in the lining, did anybody see it? On the inside of his jacket, they had a tailor and all of the journals that he had written as an athlete, the things that he had spoken over himself. He said, I'm a big believer in things declared being made manifest. And inside of the jacket, the tailor had written, I don't know how it was in the fabric, all of these statements that he had declared over his own life. I, I want to go, right? Who, who doesn't want to go like that? These are all the things that I've spoken over myself. And here he is, second in all the draft. Powerful. Whether or not you've written it in a journal, whether or not you're one day going to have a jacket that you can open up the lining and see it all, you, you have said some things about your future self that you're hoping will one day be made manifest. You have an image that you have envisioned, and you're giving your life to build it and create it. All right, so because of COVID, we've, we've, the cafe is open. Praise the Lord, right? There is coffee here at 311 Selden Road. Tonight is also, in, in over two years, if you're new to the church, you've never been a part of a participation moment, but these used to be a regular part of almost every Saturday. So I gave online church a, a heads up. That I'm getting ready to step out of the camera frame, but we're going to do our first participation moment. So if you're new, you're like, why is he coming off of the platform? I'm just, it's, we're going back to participation. So, so when, you, when you think about when you were growing up as a young person and you were envisioning a version of your future self and that image began to take shape in your mind's eye, what are cultural influences that helped shape that image, right? What were the things in the world around you that began to influence you 
when you begin to create in your imagination the image of your future self? What are some of those influences, cultural influences? Your parents, yeah, your parents, right? They have dreams for you, so they begin to say, you should do this, or I want you to do that. That's good. What else? The, yeah, right, Brentley. The internet. So you're online and you see all these other people out there, right? And sometimes you see a person and you're like, I want to be like that, right? What else? Somebody else. I know, you guys are warming up, going to the back. Raven. The magic school bus. The magic school bus. <laughs> all right. You were going to be that too. We used to watch that show all the time. What was that teacher's name? Do you remember? Mrs. Frizzle. Yeah. There's some school bus drivers here tonight. They might let you if you they might let you sit in the driver's seat, right? And take a picture. Somebody else? Anybody else? Anybody in the middle? Something that influenced you? Envisioning your future self. How about these college graduates? Nobody? They're like, don't look at the teacher in the face. Anybody on this side? Anybody want to throw something out? Something that influenced you, Scotty? Yeah, your grandfather. Yeah. Right? There are people in our family. There's people out in the, the world that we see, whether it's on the internet. Right? Can we just agree this is one of the reasons why social media has become so harmful in young people? It's because there is an image that is portrayed by people's social media that we're inundated with, and then we begin to say, I want to become like that. Does it, right? Does that make sense? Could I suggest to you tonight that image is not something that we are supposed to create? I think this is the burden that I hope some of you put down tonight. Because your soul was not made by God to create an image. I believe that image is something that we're supposed to discover. Let me read it again. Could I suggest to you tonight that image is not something that we are supposed to create. You were not built to bear that kind of burden, but rather something we are supposed to discover. Genesis 1, 26 to 27 reads this way. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. So God created man in his own image. The image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. He's not being redundant here. He's being repetitive on purpose because he wants to make sure we understand the intentionality with which he brought to that moment of creation. And not just for Adam and Eve, but he brought that same kind of intention to you and I. In, in his own image, he has created us. This word for image is a curious word because as you look through the rest of the Old Testament, you find, right, we understand that the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, and then when it was translated into English, the word for image and the word for idolatry 
are two separate words in the English language. In Hebrew, they are one. It's curious, isn't it? This word salim is the word in the original text that means image. It also means idolatry. There is a reason for that. Because mankind wants to be the creator who builds an image instead of being the image that has already been created by a perfect God. Let me read that again. The same word for idolatry is the word for image because mankind wants to be the creator who builds an image instead of being the image that's already been created by a perfect God. It's the word for idolatry. If you've spent any time in the Old Testament, when you think of idolatry, oftentimes our mind goes to the stories in the Old Testament that describe someone who has created some type of statue, a graven image in the biblical language if you've grown up in the church for any amount of time. We have this picture of people worshiping false gods, whether it were statues or whether these little mini graven images, these things that are carved in the New Testament, right, as the church is growing and Paul's traveling and preaching about the gospel. He went to some towns and they got upset because in one town they were silversmiths and they made their money by making these little images of the local gods that were worshipped. And when people began to be Christians, they stopped buying that. And so Christianity began to wreck the local economy. People got upset. But making images that we worship that are tangible is not the only form of idolatry that there is. As we're going to see tonight, Genesis 5, 1 to 3. Listen to this. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And on the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Right? It's returning to this theme of the Imago Dei, right? the image of God. He created them male and female. He blessed them and named them mankind. On the day they were created. Listen to verse 3. And when Adam lived For 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness according to his image and named him Seth. Now, that's a deep theological hole we can fall into right here, which we're not going to. Now, that verse means a lot of things. But one of the things I think it most certainly means is that mankind pivoted in this moment, and God wants us to see it where we began to chase an image that we wanted to create instead of walking the image that had been given to us. That, that, Adam, that mankind took a terrible turn in this moment. Instead of embracing the image that they had, they began to posture themselves as the creator. And I think this is one of the first references to idolatry in the Bible. Was Adam and Eve taking pride in what they had now created? And now that's passed on from generation to generation. This contrast between the image that has been given and the image that we want to create. This is 
a little bit of a parenting point here, just as a side note before we jump back into our message. Have we modeled for our children the work of building an image or the practice of discovering their Imago Dei? I'm just asking if you're a parent, what, what have your kids grown up watching? Have they grown up watching you staring into this? And in and, and your language, in your maybe even in your parental wisdom, teaching them about life, have, has, is the language that you use been the language of an image creator or an image bearer? I think one of the reasons why young people struggle today with identity is because they've grown up in homes and what's been modeled for them is the work of image creating. And we can't do it. It's a lie. It's a burden that your soul was not made to carry. And you get weary. It's fracturing. Just if I were to try to pick up that piano, something bad is going to happen to my body. I'm going to see my chiropractor on Monday. If your soul tries to pick up the weight of the burden of being an image creator, you might as well just come over and try to pick that piano up. Or better yet, you might as well just try to pick up this building. You cannot do it because your soul wasn't made for it. Because your soul was already made with an image. You were born with it. If you're a parent, I hope you're going to ask yourself some hard. I hope there's going to be a change in your language in your home. You're going to raise your children with this belief, this unshakable belief that they don't have to create an image because they've got one already from someone who made it perfect from the start. I want to give you three examples I'm excited for this sermon tonight because I, I, it's setting me free. It's been setting me free all week. I went on, I do a couple of really long motorcycle rides every year. And Ryan Nicholson and, and uh, Jonathan Adams and I went for a, a long, long ride on this past Sunday. And, and somewhere in between Gordonsville and Bridgewater College. We, we, we traveled about 500 miles round trip that day. Somewhere between Gordonsville and Bridgewater College, I wasn't even thinking about sermon writing because one of my goals is to not think about sermon writing right, on Sunday. All of a sudden, I had just out of nowhere, I wasn't even listening to Christian music. Come on. I think I was on to the Doobie Brothers by then. Started out the day with Super Tramp, just saying. All of a sudden, I'm on my, on my bike, and I have this picture of me standing in front of this mirror, which came out of the, the parlor just down the hall, just out of the blue, out of the blue. And for the next few hours, this message just began to form in my heart. There are a whole lot of consequences to trying to be an image creator. I'm, we're going to work through three. I'm not going to be in a hurry tonight. If we don't get through all of this, we're just going to push it to next week. But I want us to take our time because some of you, your grip just needs to loosen. You with me? You got to put this burden down. I've got to put this burden down. The first one is this. Created image is overly dependent. 
created image is overly dependent. Matthew 20, 20 to 28. Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, that should say, mama's boys, right, right here, right? Matthew's just throwing him a bone here, but we know what he's really saying. These two mama's boys bring in their mom to speak on their behalf to Jesus. I have this picture of Jesus turning around, looking at James and John, going, really? Really? You're sending your mom, mama's boys, Maybe sons of Zebedee we don't, is, is slang for, it's sons of thunder is how it translates, but maybe the right cultural context is mama's boys. Mama's boys. It says, then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her, with her sons. They were there. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request? He asked. Don't you love it? He asked stuff like this even though he already knows. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in the places of honor next to you, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered by saying to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering that I'm about to drink? Oh, yes, they replied. Oh, yes, whatever it takes, right? Listen to what they said. We are able. Jesus told them, oh, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. My Father has prepared those places for the ones that he has chosen. Listen to this. When the 10 other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant, right? That means that they said to them, you did what? You sent your mother? Right? That's what that means. That's what that means. But Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of this world lord it over their people and officials, flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants right now, he's challenging this image that they have created for themselves. You understand what's happening here. James and John and some of the other disciples, as you will see, have looked into a mirror and envision a version of their future self. And it includes Jesus establishing an earthly kingdom like King David and that they're going to rule with him. That in his court, they're going to sit at the places of honor. You see what's happening here, right? They've envisioned this for themselves. And they've sent their mother to advocate on their behalf so now she has bought into this image that they have envisioned for themselves. And everyone is working to see this image made manifest. Jesus is now saying to them, I'm going to give you a different image. And it's very different from the one that you have created for yourself. This is the one that I have created for you. Are you going to be an image creator or an image discoverer? Are you going to set aside the one that you've been trying to build and embrace the one that you were born with. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader, whoever wants to have an image that they envision for themselves as a leader, you must be, leader among you must be, whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first you must become your slave. And even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is teaching them about their Imago Dei. That's part of who they are. 
and what it's going to mean for them to be future leaders, leaders who serve. He was challenging the image that they had for themselves. I don't think they walked away very encouraged. We're doing a marriage small group. It's, it's the material is, 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 is so good, so good. And this week they talked about there are three different kinds of marriage. There's an A-frame and an H-frame and an M-frame. An A-frame means that when two people get, get married or, or engaged, they, they become overly enmeshed with each other. Less than Leslie Parrott, it's less than Leslie Parrott, right, are the people that, it's such good material. They become overly enmeshed, meaning that they lose all sense of autonomy and, and, and self, and they're so leaning into each other that actually become a burden for one another. Then they talk about the, the H-frame relationship, which are two people that are overly autonomous, and they, they're connected like an H, right? They're married, they're, they're together, but they really live two parallel lives. Then they talk about the M-frame relationship is, right? Somebody's going to be watching, I'm not doing the YMCA song, the... <laughs> I was talking about music. That's not on my playlist, by the way. And, and, and then the M-frame is the healthy relationship. It's two people that are autonomous but dependent. on. It's interdependent. Interdependent. I'm sharing that with you because the A-frame relationship, if you are an image creator instead of an image bearer, you, you, you have an A-frame relationship with that image. You're leaning into that thing so hard that you're just absolutely desperate for it to be fulfilled. Created images overly dependent. Created images overly dependent. If you are trying to create an image, you, you have this sense of desperation of needing that version of yourself of coming to past. And listen to this. And you are dependent, here it comes, you are dependent on the image that you have for someone else for that to come to pass so that yours can't. See, James and John, and now their mothers bought in, they had an image that they envisioned of themselves, but it was dependent on the image that they had envisioned for Jesus. If you're creating an image, what you're going to find at some point in order, if you're an image creator, you're going to find at some point in order for this image that you have envisioned that, that you're going to have to envision an image for other people and you're dependent on them becoming the image you have for them so that you can become the image that you have for yourself. And it never, it never happens. It's a life of disappointment and frustration. Created image leads to conflict. Listen to this. Created image leads to conflict. 2 Samuel 6, 12 to 23. I'm not going to read it all for the sake of time, but it's in the notes. 2 Samuel 6, 12 to 23. This is the story of King David bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into the city. They failed the first time, right? It, they stumble going over the threshing floor, and Uzzah reaches out and touches it. He's not supposed to. He dies in that moment from touching the Ark of the Covenant. They got scared. They put it at the house of Obed-Edom. And then all of a sudden, because the Ark of the Covenant was at the house of Obed-Edom, his home, everything about his whole life began to flourish. David got word of this. It was a reminder to him that that flourishing isn't just supposed to be for Obed-Edom. It's supposed to be for the entire nation. We've got to get that thing back to the capital city. 
So now they start over again. This time they do it the right way. They take the priest. They read the Mosaic instructions. And now they're at the point where they're bringing it back inside the city. I'm going to pick up in verse 17. It says, They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the special tent. David had prepared for it, and David sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings. And when he had finished the sacrifice, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord's heaven's armies, and they gave to every Israelite man and woman of the crowd a loaf of bread and a cake of dates and a cake of raisins, and all the people returned to their homes. And when David returned to home to bless his own family, Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. And she said, in disgust, how distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamely exposing himself to servant girls like a vulgar person might do. Now you might say, well, that sounds odd. What is she referring to? She was talking about him dancing with complete abandon in the parade as the Ark of the Covenant came into the city. Just lost in a moment of worship, dancing and celebrating before the Lord. And his wife, the queen, looks down and sees that he's just in the crowd with all the other ordinary people. See, she had an image of what a king should be. She had an image of what a king should do. And when other people have an image for us that is in contradiction to the Imago Dei that God has given to us, there's always going to be conflict. There's always going to be conflict. He, he was operating in his Imago Dei. He, he was operating in his, in his image that he had been given by God as a worshiper, a songwriter, a dancer, an artist. This is part of who he was as a person, as God created him. And now it was in conflict with the image that somebody else was trying to put on him. I know this is part of my journey, right? As pastors, we have to be careful because people are, they have images for us. And sometimes we put those things on. We pick those things up. And we got to put those things down. Be the people that God created us to be, to be free. Created image leads to conflict. The third consequence, I'm just giving you three, right? There could be a whole list. Created image compromises us. So created image is overly dependent. Created image leads to conflict. Creative, created image compromises us. The festival of unleavened bread, which is also called Passover, was approaching, and the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law were plotting how to kill Jesus, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot who was one of the 12 disciples, and he went to the leading priest and the captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus. They were delighted, and they promised to give him money, so he agreed and began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus so they could arrest him when the crowds weren't around. And then in Matthew 26, 14 to 16, talks about how he did it for just 30 pieces of silver. What is this about? Because Judas also had an image for Jesus. And that image for Jesus was that he, like James and John and the other disciples, wanted him to become an earthly king and establish an earthly kingdom so that this, these 12 that he had selected would be wealthy and have power beyond their wildest dreams. The other disciples were able to pull out 
of that image, not without some struggle. Peter, for example. But Judas, mm, he didn't make it. Judas was so given to the image that he had for Jesus that was not his Imago Dei either. And he was so given to the image that he had for himself and related to the image that he had created for Jesus that he was willing to do despicable things. I think it's incredibly poignant that he did it for not a lot of money because for him it wasn't about the 30 pieces of silver. It was about the hand that he was trying to force. See, he, I'm of the belief that he thought to himself, if I can just get Jesus to be arrested, then he's really going to unleash his power and we're going to take over the world. I could have made this a point. Created image deceives us. <laughs> And then after it deceives, deceives us, it compromises us. We read this story and we go, how could he do that? Because this is the kind of power that image that we create can have over us. We'll cast aside all of our values and virtues at, at the expense of everything we hold true. To see that person made manifest, the image we envision for our future. All right, we might make it. We might make it. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28, and just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. Come on. Exodus 20, 4 to 6 says, You must not make for yourselves an idol of any kind or an image or anything. Listen to the language here. I've never, I've never seen it the way I'm, I've, I've seen it this week. A kind of in, an image of anything in the heavens or the earth or the sea. You must not bow down to them. Or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children, and the entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generation of those who reject to me. That's another sermon for another time. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. See, I don't think this is just about things we carve. I think it's also about things we envision. I think one of the reasons why the Ten Commandments start with this idea of not making images is because God was saying, don't carve something that you worship, right? Because that's another example of us trying to become the creator. I think he's also saying, be careful, because you're going to want to create an image of yourself, and you will begin to worship that image. And it will displace the place that I am supposed to be in your life. Not just as the God that you're supposed to worship and serve, but the God from whom you are supposed to receive the Imago Dei that I have created you to have. I'm going to put that slide back up. 
This, this moment in time is waiting for every single one of us. Every, without exception, there's not going to be any person that can apply for an exception. There's not going to be any person where God says, this, this isn't for you. We're all hurtling through time itself. Are you with me? And at one point, we're going to come to the end of our earthly lives, and somewhere on the other side of that, we're going to have a conversation with Jesus about how we lived. What did we do with the life that he gifted us with? And I'm asking myself and you this question tonight, how much of Jesus' conversation with us on our day of judgment will be about the time we wasted trying to create an image that competed with our Imago Day. See, I think this judgment that we will all endure, there is going to be a portion of that conversation for every one of us where he talks to us about the time we spent in front of the mirror envisioning an image of our future self and then everything that we did to create that image, how about the times that we have put an image on other people that have confused them with their Imago Day? Talking to you parents again, preaching to myself. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, it says, Because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it, but whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold and silver and jewels and wood and hay and straw, but on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. And the fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, right? Judgment for Christians isn't about whether or not we're going to heaven. But listen to the language here. But like someone barely escaping through the wall of flame. I don't want to just barely make it into heaven. Anybody else? You're going to find me in heaven and say, Fred, what happened to your eyebrows? I just barely made it in. It's like, and you can't get the grill to light. Anybody had that? And the gas is on, and then finally it ignites, and it's a mushroom cloud, and you're like, my eyebrows are gone. They're gone. Barely escaping the flames. I think this verse is talking about a lot of things. One of the things I think it's talking about, I think it's talking about image. All this time that we give, that the secular world just inundates us with this image that we've got to have. God says, hey, 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 put down that piano. Put down that piano. Your soul was not made to carry that. I created you with an image. You're not an image creator. You are an image bearer. Discover that and discover life. Oh, we're bringing it home. Come on. Matthew 16, 13 to 19. Oh, this is good. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Are people going to embrace his Imago Dei? 
Are they going to chase an image that they themselves have created for him? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of Jodah, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you might one day become Peter. No, that's not what it says. It says, now I say to you that if you're lucky, you will one day be Peter. He doesn't say, now I say to you, if you work really hard, you become Peter. No, no, no. What what does he say? I say to you, you are. You, You are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And listen to what he says. And all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. That's another sermon for another time. You will never know who you are until you first know who Jesus is. If you're asking yourself, I don't know where to start. I think this image I've been chasing, I've been chasing it for so long, I don't have any idea what my Imago Day is. My, my, I, that's okay. That's okay. You put, you put some time in asking this question, Jesus, who are you? And, and you, you dig in that hole for a while, all of a sudden you'll begin to see who you are. There is a reason why in Matthew 16, we call it chronological context, that the conversation Jesus starts with them is ask them, who do you say I am? Before he tells Peter who he is. He doesn't say, Peter, let me tell you who you are. And then he gets to, and who do you say I am? Because you're never going to know who you are until you first know who Jesus is. So he says to them, who do you say that I am? Who am I to you? And Jesus, Peter says, I know who you are. You're the Messiah. You're my Savior. You're my King. I'm going to put all of my trust in you. I'm going to put the full weight of my life on you. Now he's ready, Jesus says, to know who he is. And it's present tense. How great is that? Peter's still going to do all kinds of jacked up stuff. Your Imago Dei is not dependent on your choices, whether or not you're sinning or not sinning, right? We're going to get to that in this sermon. He says to Peter, he knows he's going to betray him. He knows he's going to do all these things that he shouldn't do as a leader. But he still says to him, you are. When the great I am says to me, you are, something shifts in my soul. When the great I am says you are, something shifts in your soul. And I know what has shifted for me this week as I'm putting down a piano. And some of you, you feel the shift in your own life right now. You're putting down your piano. This image that you've been chasing, young person, it might not be big enough for you to be a piano yet because you haven't chased it as long as I have, but it's still a heavy box. 
And if you don't put it down, it will one day be a piano for you. You don't need to chase an image, young person. You were born with one. You were born with one. All right, I'm going to invite the band to come back up. We made it. Well, let's not say that in light of the sermon. We arrived. Remember those three consequences about being an image creator? Let me rewrite them in a different way for you. Your Imago Day is never dependent on the image of others. Your Imago Day should never be negotiated to please others. And your Imago Day will never require you to compromise your values. Not ever. Not ever. Not ever. During the worship, I was thinking a lot about my brother. He's lived most of his adult life either in New York or in L.A. chasing an acting dream that's never come to fruition. But but his whole life has, has been given to this process of showing up to read for a part. Right? It's, 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 it's been given to these moments where someone has written a story and you're hoping you're going to get picked to be one of the characters. The character wasn't written for you. The character was written for the character. And then they try to find someone to put in there. That's not how God did your story. That's not how God did your story. Before Genesis 1-1, when God dreamed his dream for what everything was going to be, this story that he's telling right now, he didn't create all the parts and then try to figure out who he was going to put there. I don't think that's how we did it. The Bible says even from the foundations of the earth, he saw us and he knew us. How great is that? See, God created you with the story already in mind and the part that you're supposed to play. And you're perfect for it. You didn't have to try out. You were born with it. An imago day. An imago day. Stand with me. I pray, Father, that there are grips loosening all over this room. All over this property where people might be watching as this message is being fed in to different places. All around the world as people are gathered in their living room or their kitchen or their back porch or maybe someone's in the passenger seat or in the back seat and they've got their iPhone or their iPad or their computer and they're just watching. Maybe, maybe. It's some random Saturday in 2024 and they found this sermon on a YouTube channel. No matter where they are now or where they are in time, hearing my voice, I pray that grips are loosening that burdens are releasing, that weight is shifting, that the demand that people have put on themselves, the soul-fracturing 
demand of creating an image that they envisioned that they would let it go. They would let it go. And they would say, I don't need to create an image because I was born with one by the perfect one who created me. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said together, amen. Let's worship.